So the reading is from chapter 11, picking up at verse 15 and reading through to the end of chapter 12. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God for the authority of his Messiah and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, 
those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open at uh, Revelation from 11.15 onwards. It's my great desire to one day preach that particular passage at Christmas morning because it is a birth narrative and it'll leave people scratching their heads. Uh, Let me lead us briefly in prayer and then we'll kick off together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who loves and cares for us, that you give us your word uh, through which you speak to us, that you convict us of truths by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you do that afresh for us this morning. Father, help us to concentrate on what it is that you would have us learn and uh, thank you for the wonderful promise that you bless us as we read uh, and come to understand uh, the revelation that Jesus gave to your servant John and that therefore has been given to us. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I'm a bit snotty and under the weather this morning and I'm kind of switching off physically as well because tomorrow on two weeks of annual leave, you know that feeling when you come to the end of a, a time and so naturally I'm going to be sick. Anyway, in 1864, a prominent French writer named Charles Baudelaire, which for us Aussies is Charles Baudelaire, wrote a story back in the days when you wrote stories and put them in newspapers, wrote a story for a newspaper, how's that, called The Generous Gambler. At one point in the story, the main character recounts how he had once met with a manifestation of the devil. And the devil admitted to the main character that there was one time when, as the devil, he was really worried about something he heard a preacher say from a pulpit. Uh, The main character then asks the devil, well, what did the preacher say? And the devil quoted, the preacher said, my dear brethren, never forget when you hear the progress of wisdom vaunted that the cleverest ruse of the devil is to persuade you he does not exist. The story was translated into English on at least two subsequent occasions over the next 50 years. And then in 1995, the cult classic film, the usual suspects, picked up that notion again. Uh, Does anyone, apart from Bertie, who I told this to yesterday, uh, remember the the film, The Usual Suspects? Anyone remember, like, the quote concerning the devil in that film? He's so disappointed with the marching burden. Well, here it is. The greatest trick the devil pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. There's nothing new under the sun. That was stolen from more than 100 years earlier. But... There you have it. What popular culture has at various points recognised in this case actually has a great deal of truth to it. Uh, Sadly, in some quarters of the church, especially, I'm guessing, in the materialistic Western world, we have been guilty of implicitly denying or ignoring what the Bible teaches about the devil and the reality of the demonic realm, which, of course, includes hell. A research group in the US called BARNA, B-A-R-N-A, in one survey found that four out of ten Christians they surveyed strongly agreed that Satan is, quote, not a living being but just a symbol of evil. Uh, Equally sadly, within other quarters of the church, there has been way too much made of the devil Within both Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement in particular, though it happens in other places too, it's not uncommon for people to believe in what we call cosmic dualism. The idea that God and Satan are having an epic battle and the result could go either way. 
such that the daily job of the Christian is to work out whether or not their decisions or life circumstances are being influenced more by the devil than by God. And of course, juvenile Ben could not help himself. When I saw this particular picture <laughs> depicting this idea, I had to show it to you all. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> Jono heard me having a laughing fit yesterday when I was in the office. What are, what are you doing? I said, look at this <laughs> Uh, And of course, that idea, that notion doesn't square with the Bible either. So what does the Bible actually teach about the devil? And how as Christians, living between Jesus' first and second coming, are we to regard him? Well, even though he crops up in small ways all over the Bible, Revelation chapters 12 and 13 are especially dedicated to uh, explaining the person and work of Satan. And it blesses us as God's servants by informing us of what we need to know about him and how he is to factor into our thinking. But before we get there, excited as I am, before we get there, we're going to briefly consider the final, oops, the final judgment which uh, is in the last bits of of chapter 11, symbolised by the seventh trumpet. If you remember from over the last few weeks, we've been seeing different camera angles on how history is playing out, leading up to the time when God will once for all judge the world. Those who are forgiven, who put their trust in the blood of Christ, will not be hurt by the second death, uh, whereas those who remain in rebellion against Jesus, not acknowledging him as their Lord and Saviour, despite repeated and severe warnings, we've been told, uh, will be condemned. And even though the rebellious people will trample God's church and persecute his people, it is still the right thing to do uh, what the Old, Old Testament prophets did, that is warn people of the coming wrath and plead with them to repent before it's too late. Now, I realise that if you weren't here for the talk last week, you'd be wondering why on earth I've put up some KFC on the screen. Uh, that's because it was uh, Gav's very helpful illustration that the, the process of speaking and testifying about Jesus, which the servants of God do, is like having something beautiful in your mouth, but not so good in your stomach because not everyone is going to repent. Uh, and that's, that's a, 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 the blessing and the curse, really, of living in Christ, is having the wonder and the joy of salvation and seeing other people come to know Jesus and be spared. But that horrible feeling that Christians endure all the time when friends, family, loved ones refuse stubbornly to put their faith in Christ. And that, that's the bitter thing in the stomach. That's what we saw last week. But, of course, that final trumpet will sound... And what will it look like when that happens? Well, we're given a tiny bit more detail at the end of the seven trumpet section uh, in chapter 11, beginning verse 15. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God. In other words, just as Jesus taught us to pray that God's will would eventually be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. So at the final judgment, God's kingdom will overtake the kingdom of this world. Now, whenever one kingdom overtakes another, those who have rebelled against the conquering and incoming king uh, will be condemned, whereas those who have longed for the new ruler uh, will be rewarded. 
And so far, when the 24 elders, symbolising all the people of God, fall down and worship, it kind of often marks the end of a, a section of, of, of a bit of the vision that John's given. But here there's a little bit more detail given about that final judgment as the 24 elders declare something in their worship of God. Verse 17, they are also saying... And notice worship is not singing, it's all sorts of things, including saying. Saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who, uh, who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now that line there, the nations were angry refers to Psalm 2, uh, which is kind of a thing that prop, uh, crops up a lot in this part. Have you never read Psalm 2? Read Psalm 2. There's 150 Psalms. Uh, you heard it from me controversially. Psalm 2 is the most important one. Read that one. It's the most important one except for the, um, the other 149. So, <laughs> But read Psalm 2, okay? The nations were angry refers to Psalm 2 where we hear of rulers setting themselves up and their nations uh, setting them up against God, but where God, in his anger, installs his chosen king in his territory, which we now know is Jesus, and gives that king the power to destroy all rebellion against God, dashing them to pieces like pottery. But for those who revere God's name, we're told here, no matter who you are, you'll be rewarded rather than destroyed. Then as the final judgment kicks off, the most terrifying of all things uh, happens, that is that God opens up his throne room in heaven and it will become abundantly clear who has lived up to his standards of perfect holiness as is symbolised by the Ark of the Covenant and who stands condemned. Verse 19, he's not in there. Oh, that's my bad. Verse 19, I'll read out for you. <laughs> says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. That is the piece of furniture that shows either you're worthy to enter or else you're doomed, because as God's stipulations, his decrees. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm, the thing that says the final judgment is, uh, is kicked off. That will be a most horrifying sight for all those who have yet to turn and put their faith in Christ. Uh, it'll be a horrifying sight for the atheist. What they have always known to be true, deep down, yet have deliberately suppressed, will be made undeniably obvious as God opens up the throne room for all to see. Yeah, I'm here, and yeah, I'm holy, and this is the standard. So don't give up loving your non-Christian friends and therefore praying for them that God would change their hearts to enable them to repent. Don't give up as long as we still have time. Now, as it was with the seven seals, I'd really love to hear more about the final judgment now with the seven trumpets. But again, we're taken back to yet another camera angle of what's leading up to that final day. Uh, this time, the angle to, is to do with the person and work of Satan, and his relationship to the people of God. Where does the devil fit in to the Christian life here and, well, uh, here and now? Well, the next camera angle gives us a two-part answer. In chapter 12, we learn about Satan's situation. 
why it is that he rails against the people of God. And in chapter 13, which we'll see the uh, next week, we learn about Satan's method, how he tries to appear to be like God in order to deceive people and how we therefore need uh, discernment and wisdom. But this week, as I say, we're learning about, uh, in chapter 12, Satan's situation, how he relates to the people of God. And for that, we're given two great signs. Before, we had the seven seals, then we had the seven trumpets. Now, instead, we're getting two great signs to paint a picture for us of of the lead-up to the final judgment. And uh, the first sign is of a woman. Beginning verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, there's one other time in the Bible where you hear of the sun, moon, stars and the number 12. Okay, technically it's the number 13, but there's a complexity that it's for another day. You hear the sun, the moon, the stars and number 12. That's in the dream that Joseph had about his brothers and his parents bowing down before him. Uh, So it seems most likely that this woman symbolises God's people Israel, the 12 patriarchs, the the, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, the family of Abraham, if you like, who became God's people Israel. And from God's people Israel was born the Christ, the Messiah. So she, Israel, is pregnant and, and going to give birth to to Jesus. So sign one, we've got Jesus coming from God's people, Israel. Then for the second sign, we get the devil symbolised as a dragon. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. You remember seven is complete, so this guy's got a massive head. He's um, ten horns, so loads of power. Horn equals power, strength, uh, seven crowns, so he's got all he's got all authority. Isn't that incredible? The Bible actually speaks of Satan ruling the the world. They call him the the, the prince of the power of the air in uh, Ephesians two, verse four. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Anyone want to guess where that comes from in the Old Testament? Psalm 2. Read Psalm 2. Yeah, that's him. He's going to rule everything with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. There's the ministry of Jesus in the the shortest nutshell you can give it. Born to Israel, has all the authority of God. There you go. There's the gospel. So a couple of things to notice here. First of all, so far in Revelation, the colour red has symbolised war. You remember with the four horsemen, the one bent on war was the red one. Uh, that's chapter 6 verse 4 the stars falling from the sky can refer to evil rulers who persecute God's people like the king of Babylon did once upon a time and he was spoken about uh, as the star in Isaiah 14 so it seems the devil is bent on war against God's people and he's bent on doing it through working through evil rulers but he's especially keen on, um, on devouring the male child that the woman produces. But he was unable to because Jesus conquered death, was raised up and ascended to God's right hand with all rule, power and authority, and he's now on God's throne. It's one of the shortest explanations of the gospel you can get, but uh, it sounds strange to say almost, but Jesus is not the focal point uh, in terms of text at this point of the Bible. Of course, he's the focal point of the whole of the Bible, but it's actually 
talking about Satan and, uh, and the people of God. So the woman, God's people Israel, was in the firing line and so God made sure she was cared for until her work was done. So verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Um, 1,260 days, roughly three and a half, three and a half years, right? 1,260 days. You remember that seven symbolizes completeness, so three and a half is like incomplete, you know, it's like a, a, a temporary thing, a finite time. The wilderness, by definition, is somewhere where it's hard to survive, so God really has to take care uh, of them, and uh, God takes care of Israel throughout her time on earth, I think is, is what's been communicated. We see a similar thing in verse 14. Same thing, I think. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time. Again, that's three and a half. Time, singular, times, plural, two, half a time. Three and a half, right? She'll be looked after temporarily. Uh, basically, this is a picture of many of the experiences of God's people uh, throughout history. And I think by extension, also the experience of the church. God looked after Israelites in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. He looked after them in the exile during the, the, the time in Babylon. Jesus himself was looked after in the wilderness when Satan was uh, challenging him for the 40 days. Uh, and a, the great prophet Elijah, who I think really exemplifies this, uh, he was um, looked after by God in the wilderness. He had ravens feeding him and stuff. You remember that in uh, 1 Kings? And that was after he confronted the, frankly, satanic ruler, Ahab, and he had to run for his life. God's people are persecuted, but they're never defeated. He looks after them during their temporary time on earth before he brings them up to heaven. But although Satan couldn't stop Israel's Messiah from gaining his rule over all things, both before and after the, his birth, before and after the birth of the child, he has endeavoured to make war against the people of God. It almost certainly goes against the style of writing here to assume that we're somehow seeing a chronological series of events, you know, like Jesus was snatched up and then Satan came down and so it's way worse now than it was. But he was caring for Israel before the birth, it seems. So what I think we're seeing is a bunch of pictures to let us know what Satan's position is and why he's doing what he's doing. To put it another way, we're being shown Satan in what I call theological time. Why is he hell-bent on destroying God's people Israel? And as we'll see soon, all the people of God? Well, it's because what we're learning as John recounts uh, this vision for us uh, is, well, as follows. Verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, just in case you didn't know you were talking about it, the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, God has been caring for his people before Jesus was born. Uh, and in the book of Job, we hear of Satan wandering the earth. So it's not like, you know, he was sort of up there all the time and now he's like really... Uh, it's a picture to explain why he's opposed to the people of God. Uh, to read verse 7 as strictly chronological, I think, goes against the style of writing. Was Satan thrown down to earth before Adam and Eve were in the garden so he could tempt them? Uh, or was it only after Jesus ascended into heaven? I think they're the wrong questions to ask. 
Uh, if someone has a really neat explanation of where it all fits in chronologically, I'm not sure they're actually reading Revelation on its own terms. What is clear here is that there's a picture being painted for us. Satan has lost any meaningful power or authority in God's heavenly courtroom. He's got no ability to make a case against the people of God, which we'll see towards the end of this chapter. God's Messiah did come to power. He did ascend to the right hand of God on the throne. And that means there's now nothing Satan can do to ultimately defeat him, nor any of his people. Another way you could say it is that the devil is condemned on account of God's kingdom being inaugurated. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them, that is Satan, by the way, his name means the accuser. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And remember, he's been doing that since well before Jesus. That happened to Job. You read the story of Job? Satan says to God, yeah, he's not really righteous. It's only because you've blessed him, God. Take away his stuff, he's going to curse you to your face, which turns out to be a lie. Verse 11, they, which is now us, triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is a definition of a Christian, by the way. You do not love your life so much as to shrink from death. Jesus might say it a little bit differently. You want to be my disciple? You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Don't love your life so much that you're not willing to lose it for me in the gospel. To put this all together, it's because the salvation, the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Jesus are firmly established that Satan doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to accusing the subjects of God's kingdom. That's the downfall. The way God's kingdom was established was by the blood of the lamb, the very thing that took away Satan's ability to accuse us of our sin. The blood of the lamb cleanses us from our sin so that the holy God, even in that terrifying holy throne room, uh, could say, you are welcome, come in. The devil once had something to accuse us of, but now all our sins have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb, so none of his accusations stick and hence he's been thrown out of the courtroom, if you like, hurled down to earth, no longer any, any power in heaven. Uh, here's how it could work for me. There's a charge, many, many, many charges against Ben Pakula. Satan is the father of lies, but he wouldn't have to tell very many lies in order to say, hey, God, that, that supposed servant of yours, Ben Pakula, he's done all this and this and this and this, and there'd be a very long list. And God would open the book and there'd be a blank page and then he'd open another one, there'd be another blank page and there'd be another one and no matter what accusations Satan might care to throw, the blood of the lamb wipes the whole thing completely, 100% clear. There is nothing he can accuse me for, though I deserve most of what he's going to say. So it is for anyone and everyone who's in Christ. The way you've sinned this week... God opens a book, there's nothing there, the blood of the Lamb is all. Satan might want to try the accusation anyway, but it's like the desperate cry of a defeated criminal on his way to the, the, the electric chair. It's, it's that kind of vibe. But even though Christians, spiritually we inhabit 
heaven, we're seated at the right hand of God, Ephesians 2. Currently, we still physically inhabit earth. You're all here with our bums on the seats, right? We're still here. So we've got to contend with the defeated and therefore furious devil. Verse 12, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. Woohoo, that's us. But woe to the earth and sea because the devil has gone down to you. Oh dear, that's us. And he's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. You let the mass murderer out of their prison cell, there's only one reason to let him out, and that's because they're walking to the, the, the lethal injection thing, right? He's pretty angry as he takes that walk. You don't want to be the guard walking that guy out. That's us. And Satan knows that as Christians, as we give testimony about Jesus, our words are like powerful fire coming out of our mouths, even as we're persecuted, because that's what God's servants were doing, if you remember from last week, the first half of chapter 11. So in his rage at his defeat and imminent demise, Satan furiously lashes out at the people of God, particularly, I think, with the aim of silencing their testimony as well as their obedience to Jesus. So verse 13, he wages a war of the words. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to earth... He pursued the woman, first of all, who had given birth to the male child. Then, verse 15, from his mouth, he spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. Remember, the things that come out of people's mouths are words. Jesus got the sharp sword. The, 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 the prophets who speak the word of God got the fire. Well, I think he's going, well, what's going to get the water to try and stuff the words of, of those who give testimony. 16, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged. He's pretty furious. He's already furious, and now he's enraged. He's enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. That is, the rest of Israel, no. It's those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. That's all Christians. Like the two prophets we saw last week that symbolise those who bear witness to Christ, when we give testimony about Jesus, it's like fire coming out of our mouths, even though we get persecuted. So Satan, in his fury, seeks to quench that testimony, like spewing out water. But even here on earth, God still ensures that his chosen people will not be destroyed by the lies of Satan. We already know that if God wants, he can make the earth open up its mouth to destroy the enemies of his people, especially those who directly challenge the word of God as it happened during Korah's rebellion in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. He literally opened up the earth and swallowed uh, his enemies. So having failed to corrupt those who speak the word of God, Satan in his rage makes a last-ditch effort at anyone and everyone who holds fast to the truth about Jesus, who seeks to obey God. Verse 17, I think, is the key verse. It's not only the true, all the true Israel, but all Christians who are children of Abraham. You are offsprings of, uh, offspring of that woman uh, who keep God's commands and hold to their testimony about Jesus. They're the people Satan, in his defeat, is enraged against. So on account of his defeat, he's trying to compromise our obedience to God and our testimony about Jesus. Satan is defeated, and the time he has between here and the final judgment is pretty short, so he tries to compromise our obedience to God and our testimony 
to Jesus. There you have, I think, in a nutshell, the position of Satan. He knows he's done, wants to, in his fury, lashing out against God, compromise our obedience to God and compromise our testimony to Jesus. And I bet every Christian in this room, unless you became a Christian yesterday, in which case, praise the Lord, you now have eternal life. I bet every Christian in this room can think of a time when they've had opportunity to bear witness about Jesus and have felt the spiritual resistance to opening our mouths. I know I certainly have. And equally badly, I then bet we felt shame at not having spoken up when we should have and been tempted to then fall for Satan's lie that we're somehow lesser Christians on account of our failure, forgetting that he has absolutely nothing which he can now accuse us of, even the many times we fail to obey God or bear witness to Jesus. There will be nothing in the book with your life on the last day that says condemn because they had the opportunity to speak and they didn't. That won't exist. The blood of the Lamb washes that page out. Uh, And there'll be something in the book that says, had the opportunity to speak about Jesus and took it despite the the sense of spiritual resistance. That'd be wonderful. You'll be rewarded, it actually says in this passage. God's going to reward people. Uh, In other words, you've got nothing against you and everything for you when it comes to telling other people the good news of Jesus, even though it's not always going to feel that that's the case because you've got this angry maniac who's spiritually opposed to what you're doing. The two fronts upon which we fight a spiritual battle against the devil and his powers are in terms of obeying God and bearing witness to Jesus. Uh, It's why when people get baptised or confirmed, we say you're going to fight bravely under the banner of Jesus against the devil and his works. You're going to deny Satan and and say, no, I'm against him and I'm for Jesus. It, it, It anticipates there's an ongoing struggle for Christians Uh, But the reason that struggle's there is not because he might win, it's precisely the opposite, it's because he's defeated. That's why there's a struggle that's going on. By way of implication, it may be the case that you're currently wasting your life. You see, why Satan only said here to be at war with the offspring of the woman rather than just be at war with everyone and anyone? was because if you're not one of those who obey God's command and hold to the testimony about Jesus, if you are not a Christian, then you're not an enemy of Satan. According to the scripture, you're not neutral. You are in the dominion of darkness. You are ruled over by the devil, whether you acknowledge his existence and rule or not. There's only two possibilities. Either you are for Satan in your ignorance perhaps, but you are for Satan or you are a follower of Jesus. That is the Bible's view. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about Christians as having been brought out of the dominion of darkness. You can read that in in Paul's letter to the Colossians. You can waste your life and have the same fate that he will have on the final judgment or you can give up your life. So I'd rather take up my cross and follow Jesus and be spared on the final judgment. Uh, If you have not yet turned and put your faith in Christ, do it 
before it's too late, which could be this afternoon. Stop being a wimp, man up, say this is, I, the evidence is clear, it's the right thing to do, I want to give up my life to follow Jesus. For all those who have, uh, be encouraged to fight to the glorious end. Note I didn't say fight to the bitter end, because the end is not bitter for us. No matter how bitter it may get here with the raging devil in our temporary three and a half, temporary time on earth, there's going to be a glorious end, not a bitter end. Once you know that, it sort of spurs you on to fight. Yeah, I've, I know there's these psychos out there who like do running and they run marathons and stuff like that. And apparently, when they get to see the finish line, no matter how ragged they are, there's like a little bit of extra burst of it because you know you like you get across it. You know, you're almost there. That, 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 that's a kind of framework that Christians have. He's going to be destroyed. We're going to have the glorious ending. That that sort of that rousing impetus is is ours in Christ. You might have had a terrible week where your prayer life is shot, where your Bible reading's nowhere. Uh, just look forward. That finish line's coming. Nothing that, that you've done this week can stand against you. Jesus washed it clean. Get up tomorrow and start again. Fight. Keep going. Let me conclude our time in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his death has taken away anything that stands against us. Uh, he's made us fit to be in your holy presence for all eternity. We lament that uh, for this temporary period, while we are on earth, that we've got a raging Satan uh, who desires nothing more uh, than to uh, compromise the truth, who desires nothing more uh, than to uh, see Christians persecuted. But we thank you that... Um, Nothing that he does in the here and now can, uh, can ultimately defeat and that you are always faithful and you will bring us to be with you no matter what. And Father, we pray desperately for our friends and family who as yet have not come out of the demonic realm, that you would rescue them by the blood of Christ, that you would bring them into fellowship with you and with us. And we, we, we plead desperately for this, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.